When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Annapala, they came to, the, to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of, no, of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see, what Paul sa- see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Paul brought him to Athens and there left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this is because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching that you are presenting? You are, <clears throat> excuse me, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. 
and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, and now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they had heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thank you, Patty. Yeah, you're right, Fabulous. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much for reading that whole thing. And I know most of you are thinking, oh my goodness, how late are we going to be tonight? He's going to preach through all those scriptures and verses, but we're, we are, we're not going to do that. We're going to, we're going to skip around quite a bit, but what uh, I think we need to do first is pray. So join with me and pray. Heavenly Father, we take this time tonight to give you praise and honor and glory We've already worshipped you in song, and now we want to worship you with our hearts and our minds. Please help us understand this passage. We'd like to walk away here from tonight knowing you better, loving you more, and equipped to love others more. In your son's precious name, we say, amen. Well, welcome, Sunset. It is the week of Thanksgiving, and I'm one of the leaders here. My name is Steve Marshman, and we are continuing in our series on the book of Acts, and we're going to cover the entire chapter of 17 tonight, so fasten your seatbelts, but the way we're going to do that is I'm not going to go through verse by verse. There's, as you just heard, three different cities that Paul visits. Uh, we're in the middle of his second journey, and he's about as far west, northwest, that he's going to get on this journey, and he goes to Thessalonica, Berea, and the town of Athens. So what we'll do is we'll briefly look at what happens in Thessalonica and briefly in Berea, and then we'll slow down when we get to Athens. So let's start in verse 2 and 3 of Acts 17 and jump right in. Acts 17, 2 and 3. He, which is Paul, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. We know from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 26, you don't need to turn there, you can stay in Acts 17 all night. But we know from that letter that Paul is familiar with the sport of boxing, because he uses boxing as a metaphor for self-discipline. Now, I must admit to you that when I was growing up, I never wanted to be a boxer. I always wanted to be a football player or a baseball player because to me, boxing doesn't really seem like a sport because I think sports should have a bigger fun element and a little bit less face bashing. 
That's just my opinion. You know, maybe it's okay with you. Maybe you like boxing. But to me, it just seems kind of brutal and no fun at all. And then I found out a little more, a lot more about boxing when I went to college because I had mandatory boxing classes, uh, 10 of them, and discovered that there's a key body measurement in boxing and it's arm length. Because I discovered that while I was getting my face beat in, my arm was too short and it was just getting air. And it's just realized that this, this really is not a good sport. There's no fun at all. And even though we were wearing headgear and big gloves, I didn't enjoy it at all. So I'm not advocating boxing whatsoever, but I will tell you I did learn for survival a basic boxing move called a one-two punch. For us righties, a one-two punch is a left jab followed by a right uppercut. Left jab gets the opponent set up for the power punch, the right uppercut. And if you do it really, really well, you may, act, may actually end the fight and knock the guy out. But what we see Paul doing here is presenting the gospel in a one-two punch kind of way. What does he do with this one-two punch? First, he reasons from the scriptures. That's the first punch. And then the second punch, the power punch, is that he explains and proves that Jesus, the Messiah, died and rose from the dead. It's that simple. It really is that simple. This is a consistent method of Paul. I want you to see uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he does this again. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 4 is probably the simplest presentation of the gospel in the entire Bible. Matter of fact, if anybody ever asks you, what's the gospel? You can just turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and pick it up in verse 3. Because Paul says the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the one-two punch again. The scriptures, Jesus died and rose again. Now, as you know, Jose's in Romania right now. I got a text from him this morning. Uh, the stats through Saturday, today, now it's late Sunday night there, but through Saturday, over 200 people have committed their lives to the Lord. That's fabulous. This is why we send Jose out. But do you ever wonder what he's saying over there? You know, what's he talking about? Well, you know Jose, I know Jose, it's the gospel, right? And what is he probably doing? Explaining the scriptures and telling people that Jesus died and rose again. That's the message of the gospel. That's what happens in Thessalonica. Now let's move on to Berea and skip down to verse 11 in Acts chapter 17. We're just going to look at one verse and see what happens in the town of Berea. Acts 17, verse 11. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now when we read these narrative stories in Acts, we have to remember that these are just snapshots. We're just getting little glimpses and pictures of what happened. Luke, as he records what happens uh, in Paul's journey, he's not giving us the whole story. In fact, we only have six verses to explain all that happened in Berea over several days. But it says here that they received the message. What do you think the message was? It's the one-two punch. The scriptures, Jesus rose from the dead. Paul preached the same message, the same gospel. What Luke records for us is 
the result. I want you to notice that the emphasis is on the scriptures, but not just Paul's emphasis on the scriptures, but the listeners in Berea. They examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They were testing and looking and examining, and that's a good thing. So I have a question for you. In fact, I'll have five questions for you as we go through this chapter, and that I'll repeat them to you at the end so that we can contemplate on those as we go to communion. But the first question is, are we doing this as a church? Are we examining the scriptures day by day as a church? If the only time we're looking at the scriptures is Sunday, we're missing out. There's a lot more to be had. Is our community in the scriptures like the Bereans? If we do that every day from week to week in community in together in small groups individually however we do that if we do that what's the result going to be we'll be like the Bereans we'll have more noble character that's the result of immersing ourselves in the scripture so that's the first question for us to contemplate so Paul moves on from Berea to the city of Athens the city of Athens. And I'm going to give you some background here about Athens because I think it will help us understand what goes on. Athens had quite an impressive reputation. It was an intellectual capital. Uh, and it was very cultured. Lots of educated folks live there. Today we still think of famous philosophers in, uh, at, from, that came from Athens. Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, the other thing that was interesting about Athens is the sculptures were beautiful and magnificent. The architecture was something that was looked at and admired and studied. However, in Paul's day, the architecture and the sculptures were all associated with polytheistic pagan religions. Idols were everywhere, and I mean everywhere in the city of Athens. A first century Roman satirist commented and said this about Athens. It's easier to find a god in Athens than a man because there was these statues of gods everywhere. The physical layout of the city might actually help you picture what was going on there. There's but three general areas. The main part of the town was the agora or the marketplace. And we could think farmer's market type setting in their marketplace. The difference though is there, was, there were statues of Zeus and Apollo and many other gods all around this marketplace as you shop for your vegetables. And then there was a hill uh, in view of the marketplace that was called the Areopagus. The Areopagus. And literally that means hill of Ares. That's where the, t- the name comes from. And in English that means Mars Hill. And you've probably heard the name Mars Hill because some churches have named themselves Mars Hill. But here's the thing about the Areopagus. It's a place but it's also a council. So the place the council met was at the Areopagus, so the council became known as the Areopagus. And later we're going to see Paul be uh, brought to the council to give the speech that he delivers at the end of the chapter. And then the third area was a larger hill, also in view of everything, and that was the Acropolis. And on top of the hill was the Parthenon. And that was a temple that was dedicated to the Greek goddess Athena, which is where the town got the name Athens, from the Greek goddess Athena. And she was known uh, as the goddess of wisdom and war. 
And I don't know about you, but that's quite a combination. Wisdom and war. She's smart and she's powerful and she was widely, widely worshipped. So importantly, what we need to see in the text, if you jump down to verse 16, is what was Paul's first reaction? What was Paul's first reaction when he gets to Athens? Probably had never been there before. And he gets there and the text records that he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Paul was greatly distressed. Now last week when Jose spoke from Acts 16, we know that uh, Paul was greatly annoyed over the evil spirit in Acts 16. So we see Paul getting annoyed and we see Paul getting distressed. And that begs the question, and this is your second question for tonight, what annoys us and what disturbs us? Are we aligned with the Holy Spirit to the point that we're annoyed and disturbed by the things that annoy and disturb God? Are we only annoyed when our smartphone isn't so smart and it does dub things and it locks up and it leads us astray? Are we disturbed and annoyed when our team doesn't win? Are we disturbed or annoyed when we cook some toast and we burn it a little bit? Now, that annoys me, by the way. I don't know about you, but, you know, a simple piece of toast. You've got to cook it right and it doesn't come out right and I get annoyed. That's crazy. What, is, what Paul is disturbed by is idolatry. Idolatry. And why is that? Because God's disturbed by idolatry. In the Bible, this is a big thing for God. Remember the first two commandments of the top uh, of the Ten Commandments. The first two commandments, right off the top of the list. First one is, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 2. You shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment, in the very next verse, is, you shall not make for yourself an image. You shall not make for yourself an image. God used two of the Ten Commandments to get our focus on him and away from other gods, from false gods and idols. Why? Is God an egomaniac? No. God knows that when we get our focus off of him, things don't go well for us. We're missing out. Any idol is essentially a God substitute. An idol is a God substitute. I like the way D.A. Carson, a theologian, put it, that idol worship is the de-godding of God. Now, de-godding is not a word I don't believe. Maybe it is, but I don't think it is. But the de-godding of God, that's a perfect definition. Anything that takes something away from God is the de-godding of God. So that's our third question for us tonight. In any way, shape, or form, are we, you, me, the church, are we de-godding God in some way? Because it's interesting to me that Athens was full of cultured, intellectual, smart people, and they still ended up worshiping something other than creator God. This is one of Satan's main deceptions for us, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But the reality that we have to admit to ourselves tonight is you could be really smart and really deceived. You may know people in your groups and social circles that are really, really smart, but don't follow creator God because they've been following another God, a false God. Are we de-godding God? So what does Paul do? He's distressed by all these idols. Well, verse 17 tells us what he does. He reasons with them in the synagogue 
and marketplace, the Agora. And he talks about Jesus with people uh, in the synagogue and scattered throughout the marketplace during the week. Not just on the weekend, but during the week as we go out and live our life. He talks with people about Jesus. And in verse 18, we find Paul getting in a debate with two different philosophical groups of the day, the Epicurean philosophers and the Stoic philosophers. Now, don't tune me out because you read that and you go, wow, we don't have those today. We don't have to worry about them. The reality is we do have these same philosophies today. We just don't have Epicurean and Stoic philosopher groups. But we have those same philosophies today. You'll see as I explain this, these philosophies are alive and well. The Epicurean philosophy is all about enjoying life, enjoy life. Your life goal is in search for happiness and pleasure and avoiding pain. For an Epicurean philosophy, God is uninvolved and he's distant. He's not really a factor. Now, in modern day thought, the way this philosophy comes out are in songs like the one from Bobby McFerrin, Don't Worry, Be Happy, which was a hit song for years and years. Or for you Lion King fans, Akuna Matata. That's Don't Worry, Be Happy, No Worries is what Hakuna Matata uh, can be loosely translated. And in that philosophy or lifestyle, God's not a factor. I'm just going to go about my life and find things that make me happy and pleasurable. God is distant. I don't need God. The second philosophy is on the other end of the spectrum, the Stoic philosophy. They're all about enduring life. Instead of enjoying life, life to them is all something to be endured. To those folks, good can be attained through effort and evil can be endured through effort. And for these folks, God is present, but God is like the force in Star Wars. The universe is all connected through some kind of God force, but the idea of the supreme creator God and his creation is absent. Interestingly, Hollywood seems to really gravitate towards this view of God. Remember Avatar from 2009? It's still the highest grossing film of all time, but that'll probably change in about a month when the new Star Wars comes out, right? But in both those movies... The view of God is about the same. In Avatar, if you remember the movie, there's really no distinction between creator and creation. It's all one force, very similar to Star Wars. But whatever you call these two philosophies, however you define it, whatever word you use, the question is, maybe you and I struggle with these philosophies and we get pulled towards one or the other. Or maybe you're like me, I get pulled to both and I bounce back. So sometimes in my life, frankly and candidly, I start thinking I need to enjoy life more like the first group. I need Hakuna Matata lifestyle, right? Because it sounds good. But the problem is, and I go that way, God becomes distant. Now don't get me wrong, there's absolutely nothing wrong with enjoying life. God blessed us with many wonderful things to enjoy. And I say, go enjoy them. Embrace them. Don't turn down a gift from God. He gave us gifts to enjoy, so we go enjoy them. The difference is when that becomes our life goal and our life pursuit and our life philosophy. Because when we de-God God and make enjoyment our goal and pursuit, then that de-Gods God and God becomes distance. 
So then I'll wake up and I'll go, you know, I can't do that that much. So now I need to try harder and work harder and start enduring more and working harder and making things happen and achieving things. And the problem with that philosophy is God gets de-godded because I start working on my own self-effort. The self-made man. The American dream, right? You can do it. You can be anything you want to be. And it's you, 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 and de-God, de-God, de-God. He gets out of the picture. And then fortunately, if you're in the scriptures, you get back to the life that Jesus promises and the life that the Bible promises about being a disciple and following the good shepherd who doesn't advocate either of those philosophies. Jesus promises a life that is sometimes hard, sometimes happy, but always joyful. And it makes sense to us when we're following him. Jesus gives us life purpose. Why? Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Sometimes happy, sometimes hard, but always joyful. So the question here, the fourth question for you tonight is, are we joyful? Are you joyful? Am I joyful? Are we joyful in hard times and happy times? That's one of the easiest ways to identify a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, the cool thing in Acts 17 is we have the response, Paul's response, to both of those philosophies, which are essentially false gods. Starting in verse 22, we hear Paul's teaching. He starts out and he says, I see that you are very religious. Now, today that carries a negative connotation. But Paul was probably giving them a compliment. Or at most saying something neutral. Today it would be something like saying, I, somebody saying, I see that you're very spiritual. And then in verse 23 he goes on and says, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now this inscription may remind you of the tomb of the unknown soldier because the tomb of the unknown soldier is kind of similar sounding as an altar to an unknown God. And we just had Veterans Day 11 days ago, so I remember hearing about uh, the tomb of the unknown soldier. But in my opinion, these are very, very different. And let me explain why. The tomb of the unknown soldier, what's unknown? The guy's name. But he's a real soldier, really fallen, his real bones are in the real grave. He's really there. The only thing that's unknown is his name. We know everything else pretty much about the guy. But with the, the unknown God, the unknown God is unknown because the Greeks didn't know if there was another God out there that they just didn't know about. Because their view of the gods was that they were potentially going to smite them. And they were fearful of God. So it was kind of a catch-all. It's like a safety valve altar. You know, we, might have, we have all these gods all over the place, but we may have missed one. So here's an altar to the unknown God that we don't know about. So in a sense, it was the people admitting that they were clueless about God. And this ignorance of God was Paul's opening to preach to them. So Paul starts making several points about the God of scriptures and ends with the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he's going to do here. What does that sound like? That's the one-two punch, again, from the mouth of Paul. So let's look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. 
What Paul is saying here is God is the creator. He does not live in temples or idols. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, it sounds a lot like Genesis 1-1, doesn't it? It, it is basically Genesis 1-1. Paul doesn't quote scriptures because he's speaking to an audience that doesn't know scripture or respect it. But he's using their language and talking to them. Verse 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. We just sung that earlier that the Lord gives us our very breath that we breathe and we find out through this verse that Paul is saying that God, the creator, is the sustainer and giver of life. He needs nothing from us. God needs nothing from us. He wants something from us. He wants a relationship. But he doesn't need anything. But we need everything from God. The air we breathe. The blood throwing through our veins. With all out these wonderful things that God gives us. The water that falls from the skies. We'd be dead. We need everything from him. This thought to the Greeks was very disturbing. Because they thought they were superior. Um, and that was an issue. Then we move on to verse 26 and 27. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Now slow down as we read verse 27 because there's a key point here. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. The one man here is Adam. So what Paul's doing is he's reiterating that all people have their roots in creator God. And this God is not far from us. The Greek text paints a picture of a blind person reaching out, trying to grab somebody because they can't find their way. They're blind, so they're reaching out and they're trying to find somebody. That's the picture. So here's Paul's gigantic point, huge point. God is not unknown. God is not unknown. He is near and knowable. The altar to the unknown God is wrong. God is not unknown. He's near and knowable. Not just intellectually, which is what the Greeks probably went to, but also relationally. God is knowable. So here's our fifth question tonight. Are we reaching out for God? Are we reaching out for God? He's here. He's very near. And he's very knowable. Let's move to verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul does a very, very interesting thing. That first part of that passage is in quotes. For him, in him we live and move and have our being. That's quoting one of the Greek philosophers. And then the second part, we are his offspring, is quoting another poet philosopher. What Paul's doing here is letting these folks know that he's well read. He understands their culture. He's studied their culture. He knows their culture. And he's found in their culture some statements that agree with the Bible. So he uses those statements. He uses those statements to back up his arguments. <clears throat> Verse 29 says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Now, this, one, this one's a little tricky, so, so hang with me here in verse 29. 
Paul quotes the poets in verse 28. And then in verse 29, he says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, so he agrees with these poet philosophers, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or stone or silver, an image made by human design and skill. What Paul is saying is since, since we are his offspring and we are full of life, right? We could look around and say, look, we could move, we could breathe, we could walk, we could talk. We're full of life. If we're full of life and we're the offspring, it doesn't make any sense that the origin of the offspring is this inanimate stone gold sculpture, lifeless. That makes no sense, right? If, if the offspring are alive, the source of the offspring must be very alive, even more alive. And that's Paul's point here. Now there's a big break in this story and Paul is switching from the first punch to the second punch. And here comes the second punch in verse 30 and 31. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has pointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. There lands the second punch of his one-two punch gospel. Who explained all this stuff from the scriptures, although he didn't quote it. And then he says, Jesus rose from the dead. And he adds a few things. In this passage, he says, God commands repentance. God appointed Jesus judge. God raises Jesus from the dead. What Paul's doing here is he's calling them out. He's calling them out and he's making it personal. He's getting right in their grill. He's saying God's redemptive plan is unfolding. The time of mercy is moving towards the time of judgment. So you need to repent. God has set a day of judgment and the man, Jesus, is the appointed judge. You want proof? God raised Jesus from the dead. Interesting that that's where this speech ends. Over, right? There's a reaction. Okay, you're talking about that resurrection stuff again? We're done listening for now. How do the philosophers and the people that are there listening respond? And how do we respond? Let's look at verse 32 and 34. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Verse 34 is the exciting good news. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. So there's three different reactions. Some sneered, some wanted to know more, and some believed. Now, I think we need to look at those reactions from the listener's perspective and then also from Paul's perspective. From the listener's perspective, some sneered, some wanted to know more, some believed. And if you're here tonight, wherever you're at in that spectrum, you're welcome. We tell you that all the time. Everybody of all shapes and colors is, are welcome here, right? If you're a believer, great, awesome. I know most of you are. Some of you are here just checking out this Jesus thing. And you're welcome. Keep checking Jesus out. We're going to keep hopefully guiding you through the scriptures and to Jesus. And some of you may be here sneering. And if you're sneering, you're welcome. We only ask you to like sneer nicely, right? Because we don't want to have a whole lot of confrontation. But you're well, no matter what you think about all this stuff, you're here. But what about from Paul's perspective? Because we as believers, which I know is most of us here, we need to go out and share this same message. 
from the scriptures that you know and I know, we share the same message. We share the scriptures and we share that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, some people are gonna sneer at us. But think with me for a second. Are they really sneering at us or are they sneering at Jesus? I mean, we, we have to realize that Jesus is the one that's truly offended by the sneering. We can't take it personally. We have to understand and be and expect it that we're going to have some rejection. And there will always be people that sneer at us. But the good news is there's also going to always be people that want to know more. And we should be there to help them and guide them. And then we rejoice and sing hallelujah when people believe and become believers. So what do we need to remember about presenting the gospel? It's really simple. It's a one-two punch. Scriptures, Jesus died and rose again. I mean, anybody could remember that. What I'm going to do now is ask the band to start making their way forward and remind you of the five questions we went through. So you could close up your Bibles and just start thinking and contemplating about what are you going to pray about when you sing and worship and as we go to communion. Here were the questions along the way today. First was, are we examining the scriptures every day? If you are, and I know many of you are, good job, well done, keep up the good work. If you're not, think about ways to change that life habit. The second one is, are we annoyed and disturbed by the things that annoy and disturb God. That's worth some time meditating about. God, what annoys you? What disturbs you? And how do I align my thinking up with you on that and get closer to you? And the third one is, are we being deceived in any way? No matter how studied, how well read, how smart we are, we could still be deceived. Because Satan is the deceiver. So we ask ourselves truly on our knees, God, are we being deceived in any way? And the fourth one is, are we joyful in hard times and happy times? Because that's the way we're supposed to live as disciples of Jesus following him. And the last one is, are we reaching out for God who is near and is knowable? 